You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I wanna be a producer With a hit show on Broadway I wanna be Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here. Just wanted to let you know that this podcast takes requests. If you have an idea for a great guest on the podcast, email it to me at ken at theproducersperspective.com and we'll try and get him on the show. Okay, on with today's guest. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. And I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Producers Perspective podcast. So today, I'm thrilled to be sitting down with someone who is the head of one of the oldest companies in the theater business. Please welcome to the podcast the executive director of Samuel French, Mr. Bruce Lazarus. Welcome, Bruce. Hi. Hey, Ken. How are you? So Bruce has done a ton of things in the biz. He's an entertainment attorney. He's been a producer. And now he's the head of this incredible, important machine in our industry. You know, we sometimes forget that while a lot of stuff goes on here, so much of the theater business actually happens outside the gates of New York City. So, Bruce, most people know Samuel French from having done a community theater production or a high school production. But in your own words, tell us what Samuel French is and what it does. Well, Samuel French is the oldest and largest publisher and licensor of stage plays and musicals. It was founded in 1830 by a man named Samuel French, who came up with this idea that not only could he publish the plays um, that had therefore been scattered around, there were other publishers, um, but the idea that actually he could provide them to um, people outside of the metropolitan areas who had no access to the theater other than a tour coming by with uh, Edwin Booth or somebody, uh, and that was usually Shakespeare. Uh, and so he, he he not only published them, but he licensed them and collected money on behalf of the authors, which before then um, 
the copyright law was a little unclear in the United States and in the UK, and he was an advocate for the uh, the rights of authors to, to actually be able to license their play, maintain their copyright, and uh, and make a living at it. So how did you land up in the at the big desk? Oh wow, that's um, that's a, a an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I I started out as an actor, and I. Um, uh, became an agent, and then I uh, became a manager. Um, I used to manage Ray Liotta and David Caruso and Troy Beyer and Scatman Crothers and Philip Baker Hall, Dangerous Men and Beautiful Women. And um, and I, went, I was going to law school at night, and I couldn't find um, uh, an agency job that would let me... Um, uh, and leave at five o'clock to make class. So I opened the management firm and as, as ordinary as I was as an agent, I was pretty good as a manager. And, um, along the way, actually, when I first came, I went to Los Angeles to be an actor. When I first decided to become an actor, I figured, you know, I am not going to wait for someone to discover me. I am going to find a play and produce a play. And I hate to tell you that I learned everything I needed to from Option to Opening by Donald Farber. It's a great book. <laughs> it's a great book. I read that book. Most people that are producers now have read a right. Farber book at one point. Or and um, and I went right out of the book and I produced my first play, uh, really for me to star in. But I had so much fun, I guess, really. I mean, I was so into producing it that I let someone else be in the play. And then I got into producing and I abandoned my acting career. Uh, although I must tell you that I was once on the gong show. No did you get gone? I That's... did not get gone, but I did not win. Um, but I made more money. I, I did several things as an actor, but I made more money off the gong show than anything else because it repeated and repeated and repeated. Um, uh, anyway, um, I decided to produce this play that um, came across my desk called Only Kidding. Uh, I was in L.A. and I was managing David Caruso and had a part for him. And I found I did a um, an enhanced production at the American Jewish Theater uh, in New York, and uh, he didn't come out for that. But then he came out to see it, and he went, "Oh, this is funny. I thought you were going to do it much darker," and decided that he didn't uh, he didn't want to do it. But uh, we got a rave review by Frank Rich. We moved it uptown to the uh, West Side Arts, where it ran for almost a year. And um, my lawyer on that show was uh, Albert De Silva, who is a, uh, one of the grandmasters of theatrical law. He represented Neil Simon and Cy Coleman and Lloyd Richards, and he took me under his wing. Uh, by that time, I had passed the bar um, and, um, and taught me the business. And I sat in his office for a year, and one day he said to me, you know, you got to find some of your own clients because you can't make a living off of my clients. So, um, my assistant at the time um, was um, Amy Stoller, uh, who's Mike Stoller's daughter. And she came to me and she said, you know, I know these guys, they have this sort of weird show, um, but they're looking for a lawyer. And I was looking for a client. I said, great, I'll see them. And they came in and they described this show to me and I had no idea what they were talking about. None. But they, they paid me a nice legal retainer and I said, okay, I'm your lawyer. And then I went to the Soho rep and I saw a little piece of something that I had no idea what it was. And then I went to um, um, La Mama and they did another little piece. And then they invited me to Serious Fun at Lincoln Center where they did the whole show together. And I went, oh, 
I get it. It was a little show called Blue Man Group. And that was my first uh, show as an attorney. And I worked that show for a long time. And interestingly enough, uh, at some point, Disney had called and wanted to make a movie out of Blue Man, which never happened. But I started to negotiate the deal with a, a film lawyer at Disney. And um, a few years later, Disney had produced Beauty and the Beast, all with outside counsel, and decided that they were going to get into the theatrical business with The Lion King, and uh, decided to start a uh, theatrical department. And she remembered me. She called me through a series of interviews, as, as you know how that goes. Uh, I eventually became the director of uh, business affairs for Disney Theatrical. And I worked on The Lion King and uh, the uh, international tours of Beauty and the Beast and Aida and development on some of the other projects that have now come to Broadway. Um, and then I did that for a couple of years and went into, into private practice, opened a few businesses, tried a few different things. And uh, um, I, I got friendly with um, uh, a gentleman at, oh, this is your story. I forgot about this part. So I was interested in doing something. I was living in Florida and um, I was interested in looking at a couple of plays and I was at Samuel French and they suggested I look at this play called My First Time. That's an amazing show I've heard. It's unbelievable. And I licensed it from Samuel French and produced it in Florida um, and, and did fairly well with it. Um, and then um, I also went to see uh, Awesome 80s Prom of yours, which, by the way, I just have to say, I tell this story all the time because the model you had for that I thought was genius, how you got the club to basically give you the, the club for free because you left them with a hundred girls drinking when you, when you closed the show and they started their disco. And it was, it was just, I thought, a brilliant way to, to, to mount the show. And in fact, now at Samuel French, I tell people that story all the time because I want them to do awesome 80s prom in a bar just the way you did. Um, but nevertheless, um, um, uh, in my, in, in the course of, uh, 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 of doing that, the head of Samuel French um, was let go. And I had sort of gotten a little friendly with him. And where'd he go? What happened? I got no answers. I got no answers. And I was always fascinated with the Samuel French model because I always loved music publishing. And it was like music publishing, except it was theater, which was my true love. So here it was like music publishing for theater. Wow, great copyrights just my thing. Um, and um, I interviewed a few times with the, um, uh, their search committee and, um, uh, and I didn't get the job. Um, uh, a fellow named Nate Collins, who is um, one of the three, as part of one of the three families that owns Samuel French, took the position of, uh, of CEO um, and then invited me a year later to come in and and work with him, and that was the 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 um, the best thing that ever happened because he is you know he's our corporate president and he has a a great head for business. Um, he's developed this love for the theater, and he's great at building teams. And that's what Samuel French has really become. It's all about teamwork. 
and a passion for theater. And, um, and so I, I came in and, um, started to run the licensing department and the marketing department and the acquisitions department and basically the forward facing front of Samuel French. And, um, and I've been there now for over three years. I tell people it's my dream job. Because it is, it's the, it's the culmination of all of my talents and interests and, and, and experience and whatever little wisdom I've picked up along the way. I get to tell all my stories. It's great. Well, it's funny. I was just thinking about, oh, you're perfectly suited for this. You've got an administrative and a law degree and you're, you can deal with all the copyrights, but, and then you start telling me about pitching the automated prom, which thank you very much, by the way. Uh, but there seems to be a combination of both the legal aspect and the marketing aspect in what you do. How much of your, like, what's a typical day for you? What's it most spent on as the head of a company like Samuel French? What do you find yourself doing the most? Well, you know, I'm, I'm also, um, I also do all of our business affairs. And one of the things I was able to do when I got to Samuel French was, um, the business affairs of the company had not been in good shape. We were using a contract from, I don't know when, from the 1950s. Um, and, um, through much resistance with the, uh, with the big agents in town, I was able to dump our little four page contract. And, and basically now we operate with a, maybe a 23 page contract that really covers all of the bases and makes it clear. And there's a lot less room for ambiguity. Um, but having done that, I think we were able to um, go from being the um, the old dusty and musty Samuel French to being a real player in the business, which is what we are today. So um, when you ask me what I spend my day on, I spend my day on uh, on acquisitions and um, and the contracts that go around those acquisitions. Uh, I oversee our marketing department. I oversee, as I mentioned before, um, our editorial department. Um, you know, the thing that's, that has really, I think, changed at Samuel French is that we've really become artist focused. You know, it's really about the playwright. Um, everything we do centers around the playwright and at the end of the day, does it all end up in increased licenses, which also is about the playwright? Yes. But all of our marketing initiatives, all of the, the, the pieces we choose to represent, all of our, um, uh, our licensing efforts, we have a very proactive licensing team. We, we've, um, by the way, we have 50 people who work in New York. I believe we're the largest um, of any of the people in our business. Um, we have 50 people in New York. We have another 18 in London and another almost 10 in Los Angeles. And um, our licensing team is double what it is when I got there. And we've, 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 um, we've really, we've put people into pods so that instead of someone now who that used to represent um, amateur rights in five states now handles high school. I have two people that just do high schools anywhere in the world. People that do, um, uh, Theaters for a young audience, people that are focused on the college market, people that are focused on professional. We have the largest professional team of, of anybody. We have six people and they are focused on professional licensing. So, um, we've drilled down so that we have an expertise in those areas as, as opposed to just being a geographical thing. 
So you mentioned acquisitions being a key part of what you do every day. Is, is this statement true when it comes to licensing and, and for you deciding whether or not you're going to acquire something? The more success the show has on Broadway, the more successful the licensing will be. Is that statement true? Um, for the most part, it's true. I mean, there's more uh, awareness of it. There's more interest in it. It takes less effort to get people to to know what the show is about. Of course, there are a lot of things about a show that make it more licensable or less licensable. You know, if it's a show with a cast of 28 men, it's a little harder to license in the amateur market where you have lots of, uh, you know, schools with predominantly uh, um, uh, women cast. Um, so it, it depends on a lot of factors. But for the most part, from a marketing standpoint, sure. Um, if it's had some heat on Broadway, off Broadway in a regional market, certainly if it's won the Pulitzer or the Tony Award, makes it a lot easier. So what are some of those other factors that when you're looking at a show are on your checklist to decide, yes, this is something we should acquire or no, this is something we should pass on? Well, let me first say that we are committed to our writers. Um, if, a, if we're already publishing a writer, we're more likely to uh, pick up their other work. Um, whether it's commercial or not. But, you know, now that I say that, whether it's commercial or not, we're really focused on, on the art of theater. I mean, do we have a, a, um, a calculation as to what we'll pay as an advance based on what we think the show will do? Sure, we do. But we're really interested in, in fostering the great American play. So, um, you know, we're picking up artists like Will Eno and Susan Laurie Parks or Jennifer Haley, who's got this great play called The Nether, um, um, or Bathsheba Duran with The Mystery of Love and Sex. Um, these are not necessarily the most commercial plays, but they're the plays that interest us and that our team is passionate about. You know, we have a really deep team. Everyone on our team is a theater professional. Everyone has come out of a theater school. Before they get a job, they have to do a PowerPoint presentation for us on how they would sell several of our shows into various different markets. We drill them pretty hard. We take the creme de la creme of, 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 of available people out there, and then we train them. They're reading all the time. They're reading everything new that we're picking up. They're reading the classics um, so that they can articulate what we do. Um, we want to make sure that our playwrights... You know, a play, you're a playwright, you know. Playwrights are, are an amazing group of people. They stare at a blank page and they create something out of nothing. Everybody else in the theater, I mean, I love actors, I love directors, I love designers. They are creating derivative works of the play. Without the play, um, there is nothing. And so... Um, we want to make sure that that this play that's that has maybe taken a year or two to write, you know, this is their this this playwright's baby. We want to make sure that we give it a nice, long, healthy life after it has a run uh, in New York or regionally or on Broadway, knock wood. But um, uh, so so, I think therein lies um, the difference. How often do you pick up shows that don't have a New York life? Again, it depends. If it's a if it's a if it's a writer that we're working with, um, uh, we'll pick up a show whether it's come to New York or or not. If it's a new writer, 
um, I think we have to look long and hard if we can if we can do it justice. We don't want to pick it up just to pick it up. You know, um, three years ago when I got there, we were picking up uh, 140 or 160 plays a year. Now we're picking up more like 40, maybe another 20 that are, you know, our OOB winners. We do the off-Broadway, the off-off-Broadway festival. There are another 20 in there that, that we also pick up, but a much smaller group of plays because we want to pay attention to it. We want to really give it its best shot. Um, so that's something actually I can tell you from the outside that I've even noticed. You know, it used to be back in the day when I was looking to produce something, I would just pick up the Samuel French catalog and like flip through something. And it was like the fattest, biggest catalog you right. could imagine over all your competitors. And it seemed to be that that was the goal. We just want everything. But I've noticed, uh, and I think it's a very smart approach that you're taking, which is just to cater to those people that you have and acquire new, of course. But being a little more selective and, of course, being a writer that's in your catalog, I appreciate that very much. It's, it's also big in fact because we've been around since 1830. <laughs> now, not all of those plays are still in copyright, but we have a lot of material. So, you know, if you've heard of Pareto's principle or the 80-20 rule, um, which says that 80% of your effects come from 20% of the causes, what or or 80% of your sales come from 20% of your cl your clients? It works on everything. Everything, right? <laughs> who are the who? Are, where are all your sales coming from? Where are the 80% of your sales coming? Do you have this? Does it apply to Samuel French? Is it Broadway delivers the most? Is it regional? Is it community theater? Is it high school? You talking about licensing yeah. or where the plays are coming from? Licensing. Licensing. Um, Actually, it's a, it's pretty much a 50-50 split between professional and amateur. Um, so not so much the 80-20, but there are probably 10% of the plays generating 80% of the income. If only one, if all of a sudden the families that own Samuel French, it sounds very mafia, Godfather-like, by the way, which I love. <laughs> if they came to you and said, Bruce, you have a choice. We're changing our business model. You can only serve one market. Regional, summer uh -huh. stock, community theater, high school. Which market would you serve to make the families the most money? So you're asking me a financial question, not necessarily an artistic question. Correct. Um, I would say probably the amateur market because the amateur market... Um, uh, takes less effort in the licensing. You would need less staff to actually run the, a, a, a complete amateur department. And when you say amateur, you mean community theater or high school, both? Yeah, both. Both? Yeah. What if it was community theater or high school? Which one? I don't know. I have to think about it. I, I actually have to look at the numbers. They'd be pretty close. Well, we'll get back to you on that. Okay, we'll we'll let everybody know. Bruce will do some research on that one. Okay. Uh, so Broadway is obviously exploding. We're seeing higher grosses than we've ever seen before. We're seeing attendance go up, go down a little, go up. Uh, we've got telecasts of shows going on. No, no, what do you mean? The, I thought Broadway is booming, right? Every year we're we're doing a higher gross, gross but a lower attendance. Eh, it's, you know, it goes up, it goes okay. down. It's kind of flat. I just want to say, I read your blog. I know this thing. I know these things. And we're seeing these great telecasts. You know, are you seeing this trickle down? Is the... The subsidiary market, the amateur market, are you getting more licenses now than you did 10 years ago as a result? Is it trickle down licensing, if you will? I'm sorry. What do you, if what is trickling down? Because there's more 
Um, because Broadway is booming yes. so much. Yes. Are, we, are you seeing a boom in the subsidiary market as well? I, I think so. Um, I think there's a boom because there's, a, I mean, Broadway has done an amazing job at, at branding. Um, Broadway is now in every town, you know, that has a performing arts center. It's Broadway. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, 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 I think so. But that also, in some ways, narrows the market because... Uh, People want to do the Broadway, you know, the hits from Broadway. Um, and maybe shows that didn't get to Broadway have a harder time. Off-Broadway shows in our market have a harder time than a Broadway show. Um, doesn't make them a better show. just makes, you know, sometimes the economics for Broadway and Off-Broadway are different. Um, but, uh, but I must tell you that, um, and I don't know that it's related to the interest in in the... In the theater or Broadway, um, but I think that we've gotten better at marketing shows and licensing shows. We've seen a um, over twenty percent increase year over year over the last three years in uh, professional licensing and a high single digit year over year for the last three years in amateur licenses. Um, so um, we're certainly doing something right. Uh, I'd like to think it's it's our efforts and not uh, and not just the, the the business. But I'll tell you something. I, I don't know why I'm, it's a little off topic, but I'm reminded of it. I have two teenage sons, and when they were young, I asked them, would they rather play a video game or would they rather see the movie that the video game is based on? And they said they'd rather play. The video game. And I said, why? And they didn't say this exactly, but basically the message was in the video game, they get to be the hero. And in the movie, they just get to watch the hero. And I, when I got to Samuel Fresh, I thought, ah, all of these video games is building this vast audience of people that want to participate. They want to be in the game. And so that's what we do. We allow people to put on a show and be the character. They're in the game. They're playing the role. And so I think all of this video game, um, coupled with Glee and coupled with all this interest in performing and high school musical, um, all of that I think has, um, uh, has helped, um, garner even more interest in being on stage, being in the theater, inviting your friends to come and watch you do it. So anyway, now the love topic. No, I'm a big believer that video games are going to actually revolutionize the way theater is presented. That generation is going to demand a different type of entertainment uh-huh. when they go to the theater for sure. And speaking of video games, let's talk technology for a bit. Mm. You know, when I was licensing or, or performing in shows repped by Samuel French back in the day, I get the script, I have a piece of paper, a, a eraser, make sure you erase everything before you submit it, send it back. Like it was just, that's all you got. Tell me about how technology is changing the business of licensing. Well, Ken, let me tell you, we are in the technology business um, in a big way and, and, and really in a way that no one else in our industry is doing. So uh, let me tell you about a number of things we have. Um, one is we just started our um, digital subscription reader called Abbott that allows you to access basically almost all of the plays in the Samuel French catalog on your phone, your iPad, uh, your computer. Um, it's a web app and it is brilliant. You can buy a play, you can rent a play. Um, 
as a, as a, an initiative, we make that available to artistic directors to peruse, and we also make it available to all dramatist guild members because we are a firm believer that playwrights need to stand on the shoulders of those that came before them um, in order to to be to in order to learn their craft. And you know, you can't exactly go to the library and get plays. I mean, you can get the classics, but you can't get plays. And it's very expensive to buy plays, even to rent plays. Um, so we make the, the Abbott Reader available for free at no charge to Dramatist Guild members. And we still pay the royalty on the, on the read to the author. So we don't, we, we're not asking the authors to finance other people to read their shows. We, 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 we cover the, the royalty every time someone reads it, even if they haven't paid for it. Um, so we have our Abbott Reader. Um, I was just showing you before we have this new thing called an enhanced ePlay, which is a multimedia um, ePlay that has video and audio, sound effects, a dialogue coach, um, a director who's giving you notes, uh, descriptions of what the world of the play and what's going on in it. And at the end, you can, this is a Agatha Christie's and then there were none. Um, the, the toy soldiers that all break, there's 10 of them that break in every performance. We give you a, a link to print 3D digital soldiers at any Home Depot or uh, Lowe's. Um, it's like so, a play in a box you're giving it. Yeah, like a yeah, play yeah. on an iPad. Yeah, it pops yeah, up. it does. Um, but we're also, we're doing a lot of other things um, uh, digitally. We've just started um, going into the vocal selection and sheet music business. So um, our first few that are out are Hands on a Hard Body Vocal Selection. We have a Natasha Pierre, which is coming to Broadway this year, uh, the vocal selections. Um, we have uh, Fun Home, which is about to uh, uh, be delivered, the, the final on that. We're also delivering sheet music for Fun Home and Heathers. We also have a vocal selection book on Heathers. Um, and um, the sheet music we're delivering by a digital dis distribution method, which is different than basically anybody else that's out there. Um, well, it, to some extent, it's similar to music notes, but we actually bury a um, a code in it so that people cannot, um, if people were to somehow um, download a copy, and let me take that back because we actually don't allow them to, to download it. Um, it's a viewable um, sheet music which they can, um, uh, we control the number of prints they can have. They can print one copy from it um, but should they take that copy and scan it and try to sell it or make it available on the internet, we know who's done it. So there's a, you know, we're very conscious of protecting our playwrights. We're very big on anti-piracy. We have a white paper we put out called Owning Their Words, um, which basically talks about, you know, how playwrights and composers and lyricists make their living at it. You know, I think people feel like they can download a uh, a song or a movie and go, who are they hurting? They're hurting Warner Brothers. They're hurting, you know, Universal. Eh, they can afford it. They're a big company. But Samuel French is just the agent for the authors. We take a 10% commission on a professional license and a 20% commission on, a, on an amateur license, which is standard across the, the industry. But the 80 or 90% goes into the pocket of the playwright who's using it to 
you know, buy groceries and to send their kids to college. And so when they're stealing a playwright's sheet music or they're bootlegging their play or they're doing a performance of it without paying for it, um, they're taking the, the bread out of the mouth of the playwright. And so we're, we're, we're very big on uh, playwrights' rights, on enforcement and, and compliance. You know, we've had these a few issues this year where people are taking um, uh, our, our author's plays and changing them. Yeah, you guys have been in the news a few times over the We past have, we have. And um, you can't change their work. It's not, a, it's not right. It's not what they've worked for years to get it just the way they want it. Don't change it. If you don't want to, if you don't want to do it the way it's written, don't produce it. Do you find that that's happening more frequently now than it used to because of the way the world is? And No, I think it's happening actually less now. What's happening more is is that it's easier to find them because everybody's got a Facebook page and everybody's, you know, we have Google alerts and uh, it's much easier to find rogue productions and, and, um, and uh, illegal uh, copies of the script and the like. If you could get all the Broadway producers in a room, what would you say to them about licensing that they don't know or understand? Is there one thing that you would say like, hey, guys, you need to think about this because it's going to help you down the road? What a lot of people forget is that shows can get to recoupment based on licensing. You know, we all talk about recouping and what recoups here and that a show will announce if it did or not. Interestingly enough, this industry, we don't announce five years after a show has closed, if it's recouped in licensing, that doesn't pop up on Playable.com. Right. But it happens. Or even on the tours, you're usually not, not hearing about it. Right. It's only whether it's recouped on Broadway. So is, is there any lesson in licensing that you could teach the producers that mm. they should know, things that I should know that I don't? Well, you know, every show is different. Um, and, um, you know, School of Rock now has uh, um, released high school productions while it's running on Broadway. I think that's a very brave move and very smart. Um, some shows benefit from it. Some shows maybe don't. Maybe, you know, the old-fashioned producer wants to keep all those things close to the vet. They don't want any competition. When they go to, you know, um, Milwaukee, they want to make sure that no one's ever seen this play before. Sometimes that might be a, a good strategy, but there are other times where all those kids that have just done that show are going to get themselves and their parents and they're going to go see the real show, see how it's really done. And I'm sure that's what's going to happen with School of Rock. Um, um, you know, we, we see a little bit of that happen with Chicago, which is our show, where people will go to the tour because they've, they, they, they've done the show themselves. Um, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about this before. I heard someone talk about baseball, why baseball is so... Um, lasts year after year, generation after generation. It's because when you're a kid, you throw and you catch the ball, whether it's with your dad or with your friends. You have that experience of throwing the ball and catching the ball and throwing the ball and catching the ball and hitting the ball so that when you go to a game... You can put yourselves in the shoes of the batter, of the fielder. You have that experience. You know what that feels like to do that. And so the more that we have kids in shows, seeing shows, being in shows, whatever, when they go to the theater as an adult, they get it. They understand it. They're, they're, they're part of it, you know? And so I think it's very important to, uh, um, to foster that. Yeah, I just, 
saw a student production of Les Mis in New Jersey and a, a week or so ago and blogged about how in the old days that probably wouldn't have been allowed to happen while the Broadway production is still running right now. And I found that seeing it made me want to go see the show mm-hmm. again, never mind all the kids that, as you so smartly put, would probably want to run uh, uh, you know, across the river to see that show. So I do think that's something that's changing mm-hmm. in terms of us producers having to loosen those licenses up a little bit earlier. Right. What about logos and materials? Is this something that you guys are getting into now? You know, typical, if if I think, and I often do, as my shows, like a franchise, when I do them across the country, I like them all to look the same way. Mm. But we also know that high schools like to design their own things. Do you give people opportunities? What, what do you we, find we, when it comes we, to art? We provide the logos when we have them. Um, and sometimes... Um, uh, most of the times we can get the Broadway, off-Broadway artwork. Um, sometimes we can't. Um, sometimes we'll create our own logo if we can't, with the approval of the of the authors. Um, sometimes the Broadway producer doesn't want us to use their logo and wants us to use some other logo. Um, and and sometimes the, the, the theater just wants to create their own. Um, we don't demand that they use the logo. Um, but actually, if, a, if an author insisted on it, we would make it part of the deal. You know, the um, authors own a copyright in their work. And because they own a copyright in their work, they get to make decisions about it. They can decide who they want to do it, who they don't want to do it, whether they want to issue a license or not issue a license. And if they do issue a license, if they want to put restrictions on that license as to you have to use the logo or you can't change the race of the character or whatever those restrictions are, that's their right to do. And so we'll, we, we, uh, we back up our playwrights on that. What do you think is next for the licensing world? What do you see in the future in 10, 10 years? Mm. You know... Um, I think the fact that it, this is not really answering your question, but the fact that it is a primitive art form, you know, that does not rely on technology, you know, that's basically comes from, you know, people sitting around the campfire telling stories. Um, there's something about telling stories in the dark with other people um, that transcends, transcends that. Um so um, I think there's a place for movies. I'm not sure. I know you're interested in um, um, presenting um, stage plays live um, on film or on a video. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that would help or hurt our business. And I'm not sure how, how, um, how well it translates. Um, you know, there used to be this old saying, this old thing in the theater, which is, you know, show me a videotape of your show. And you go, oh, you know, theater doesn't look good on video, whatever. No, no, no. I'm a professional. I can tell. Just send me the video. And then you get the video and you go, this is terrible. This looks terrible because it, it's, it's hard to translate it. So if you're shooting it live, I guess like three camera, like a, a, a TV show. Okay. Uh, I could see that. Also, you know, it's a longer form and it's not... It's not like a sitcom. And so to hold an audience's attention, there's something about it being live in the, in the space that you've bought into it. You're, 
you're there. It's like if I watch it, if I go to a class and I'm in the classroom, I, I get so much more out of it than if I'm trying to take a, a class on my computer, whatever, because I, uh, suddenly the phone rang. I'm interested over this. Something happened over there. Oh, look what's happening outside. I'm distracted. When I'm in the classroom with other students, I'm focused. And I think there's, there's something about being in the theater that, uh, that, that makes that happen. Even in a movie, you're with other people in the dark. Um, so, um, when you're doing Daddy Long's leg, Daddy Long Legs, is that delivered to the homes or is that delivered to, uh, theaters? We delivered it to wherever they could access the web. And what was your, uh, feedback on it? 150,000 people in 135 countries tuned in. Did they watch the whole, whole play? Did all of them? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think when you're experiencing something online, I mean, we live in a world now where people watch on two, three screens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Everything I watch, I've got my laptop in front of me and my phone mm-hmm. next to me. And, and people walk out of the theater, too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> or fall asleep, God knows. Never happened to me, though. No, not me either. Okay, so my last question, my genie question. Mm. Would you imagine that mm. the genie from Aladdin comes to see you and thanks you for being the advocate of the playwright and says, because of all the work that you've done, I want to grant you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that makes you stay up at night, that gets you angry, that you would wish that this genie would change with a snap of a finger? Well, you know, my wish is that playwrights could make more money, that playwrights would make a living in the theater. Um, you know, we all read Todd London's book, um, Outrageous Fortune, and um, the average playwright makes, I think, between twenty-nine dollars and $39,000 a year, and only, and, and only half of that from playwriting. Um, actually, only half of that from writing because some of them are writing other things. And of that half, only, I think, 15% is from playwriting. So playwrights have a really hard go. And I think unless we find a way for them to make more money um, and protect their rights, I think it's going to be... Uh, you're going to have less people writing for the theater. And the less people writing for the theater, um, uh, the less chance of having that next great American play. Um you know, one of the things we're working on is a thing called Playwrights Welcome, where we're asking theaters all over the country um, to allow playwrights to come into the theater when they have unsold tickets. Right before the show, if there are unsold tickets, let a playwright, a dramatist guild member, show their card, come in, see a play, learn from other playwrights, learn from the director and the designers. Oh, that's possible. I didn't know I could do that in the theater. Because we need to grow this environment and we need to keep playwrights uh, involved. So I, I think producers, it's, and it's, I think it's incumbent upon producers and, and regional theaters to, um, to respect the fact that playwrights have spent a really long time writing this. A lot of times they're going out to that regional theater on their own dime to attend rehearsals or, or to go to opening. Um, and um, we need to make sure they're making a living. And so I think it's on, on both sides of the issue. One is, you know, making sure they're getting paid uh, a, a decent royalty. You know, they're not getting a salary. A director can go direct three plays a year and make a salary and get health benefits. Uh, actors can do the same. A playwright, 
owns his work, yes, but is not getting health benefits, is not getting a salary, is dependent on a royalty, and everybody wants a piece of that royalty. You know, the director, you know, says, well, I want, the, you know, I want a piece of it. And there's a royalty pool. The producer wants to say, hey, we should all share in this royalty. Um, and then on the back end, you know, subsidiary rights. Um, you know, the the authors made this deal, uh, I don't know, 100 years ago um, that said, oh, we'll own our work instead of, you know, like a screenwriter where we sold it to the producer. We'll own our work. And... Um, uh, and the, and the producer said, yeah, you can own it, but we're going to take 40% of, uh, of all the future uh, income from it. And it's not all the future income, and it's not always 40%, but it's a large piece. And, um, you know, the playwrights that are, you know, the, the, the multi-million dollar earning playwrights, and we did Godspell, Stephen, Stephen Schwartz, God bless him. He's making a very nice living, and, and so is everybody else involved with him. But you know, the average playwright is not making that living, and now 40% of, of, of his play or her play is going somewhere else. And so I think we need to pay attention to that. I know it may not be popular with, with producers, and I know you are the I'm producer's perspective. Here, I understand that, and I know that, and I know the line. Listen, I've been a producer. I know the the producer is uh, adding value to the to the to the production. But for the producer's play, would this play even be earning that money? I know all the logic about it, um, and yet I still feel that I'm compelled to say it needs to be looked at again. I love your your passion for the playwright, and actually, I would not disagree with you. I would love them. I would actually say that I could agree to give up that 40% faster because we don't get it forever. We get it for a period of time mm -hmm. that we negotiate, right? Sometimes 30%, whatever. I would give that up faster as long as my show had recouped and gotten its money back with some profit to the investors. So I would be happy to shorten the life if I got more of it fast because all that I care about, and I think most producers, we're not in this to get rich. Playwrights aren't even in it to get rich. Right. But in order for them to keep writing, they got to get paid more. In order for me to keep producing, I have to earn a living. But Absolutely. more importantly than me, frankly, is the investors have to keep getting their money back or they'll just stop doing it. So there's there, there's a balance there, hopefully, some somewhere that someone will figure out right. and break these arcades. I, I, you know, I think there's a nice... You know, when you're raising money and we've both raised money and you and you want to tell the investor that not only are you going to get money from Broadway, but, you know, maybe there'll be a movie and maybe there'll be a TV series. And you know what? We'll make money from stock and amateur for the next 20 years and whatever. It all it's all good part of the sale. But I wonder if that investor wouldn't in, would, would still invest if all they were getting was the Broadway and the tours and 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 and, and maybe a smaller share of that piece. I don't know that that's really the the hook that's getting them. I know that's what we say, but I don't know that it's really Well, investors, true. if you're listening out there, chime in in the comments. Let us know what you think. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me today, Bruce. Thank you, Ken. This was great. And uh, had a lot of fun. And next up on the podcast, speaking of one of those successful writers out there, we're going to have Stephen Flaherty joining us, uh, composer of Ragtime, Seussical, and a whole lot more. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Don't forget, if you've got ideas on who you think would be a great guest on the podcast, email them to me at ken at theproducersperspective.com. Love to hear from you.
you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.